So I don't know if you ever, guys have ever heard of this uh, random esoteric company called uh, Chicken Chicken Beak or something like that, but they apparently have some kind of team on board which did some kind of series which I, I guess is kind of popular. Rububi, uh, Rububi. So I'm not sure how to pronounce it. No, I'm, okay, I'm memeing a little bit. I really don't have any history here. I've probably heard the phrase Ruby in context with some kind of anime several times in my life, but it's never been anything that I've even cognated as being a thing. In fact, it wasn't until this request was made that I looked into it and was like, oh, okay, so it's it's like a CGI animated short thing? Under Warner Brothers, actually. Anyways... Um, Anime Man is still dead. Let's just make that very clear. I accepted this as a personal favor to someone who I know who is cool, who is also a longtime supporter of the show, but he's a cool guy, and that's why I accepted this. Pretty much the exact same reason I accepted Madoka Magica. Madoka Magic Magic Doka. So, um, don't expect much more from this, okay? Just, I want to be nice and up front of a, up front, open and upfront about this because, um, well, this is definitely an outsider's perspective kind of a deal. I'm going to do the best I can to analyze this work as I do just about any other work of fiction. I'm going to fail at it. I have huge chunks of this two-hour movie that I don't really have anything to say about other than what I have already said about it because, well, we'll get there. But I do want to say this, uh, before we get into it, I do want to mention something. Despite the fact that this is a clear and obvious case of episode one, I don't mean Phantom Menace, I mean episode one of a series, and I do know that the series has continued past this point, although I have no idea how far. I mention, Part of the reason we're not just doing the whole series is because this one thing is two hours long. Again... Half the films, actually, I think more than half the films we'll be covering this year are shorter than this. You know, the films that came out in theaters. Time is a valuable asset, and one that I am finding myself having less and less of as I get older and worse and terrible. So, that's why we're just doing the one. It seems, at least this time we're starting with one, right? A lot of times you guys will nominate something. Some people still don't understand this. You guys, that is to say my actual supporters, my patrons, who support me through Twitch or through donations or whatever. They're the ones who decide what these videos are about and what we review for with regards to video games. A lot of times what will happen is you guys will say, hey, can you cover the third thing in this work? Or the fifth? Or the second? And I'm like, okay. Sure, I'll play Dead Space 2. Have you played Dead Space 1? No. <laughs> sure, whatever. <laughs> Shrug. I, I don't care that much. Oh, anyways. At least this time we're starting with episode one. So, we have a myth. Uh, we have a myth about monsters who discover dust. Uh, I mean, magicite. I mean, chrism. I mean, Tiberium. Actually, they don't discuss dust hardly at all in this episode. I had a vague theory about it, but it was so vague and so unsupported, I'm not even going to share it with you. It's just kind of there and it allows them to do semi-magical things, and I, I do know, thanks to an interview I read, that it was supposed to be likened unto Materia over in FF7, so, okay, cool. 
We also find out that there's this guy who's robbing us, which is just great. And my first thought was, are these guys like the mafia, or are these just thugs? Obviously, that question is kind of answered over the course of the work. But at the time, I'm just looking at this like, okay, so they want the dust. All right, that, that makes sense. It lines up. I'm with it. I'm with it. Um, <clears throat> what, uh, what really amused me is they go over to Ruby, the character, are you robbing me? Yes! <laughs> so, we have a bunch of what are effectively high school or college girls who are super ridiculously strong in combat, very anime. I can tolerate that. It's okay. You know, I, I can live with it. I, I can endure it. I mean, one of the other things I'm covering uh, looks like later this year, I have a rough schedule up over here, is Advent Children, which certainly breaks physics a lot more than this does. But what I think amuses me most is this is how they open. From a narrative construction perspective, they want to make sure that you have an idea for what you're getting into pretty much right off the bat. So the first thing they do is they do two things. Foreshadowing and uh, let's call it premise. Uh, premising. There we go. Premising. That's a new word. I just made it up. You can use it too. So we have the foreshadowing. That's Jackass and his attempts to steal dust, which is obviously going to be a major plot point. Um, and comes through in the finale of this work, and will probably come through in the future. Then we have her beating the ever-living crap out of those guys with a giant scythe, which is also a gun. See, like I said, you get immediately what... This is, this is smart. This is smart construction. This then leads to her encountering a huntress, and her being super jazzed about the huntress, and just fangasming about it. Oh my god, it's so cool, can I have your autograph? And a jump cut. Now, I actually have this comment later because, you know, I, I'm trying to study the work as I'm analyzing it. And one of the things I think they do best in this work is when to move the camera, uh, which is about a matter of timing. Now, let me try and explain that a little bit. A lot of works will focus on where to put the camera or where to move the camera. Not a lot of focus is usually done on when to move the camera, either in terms of just a sudden shift from perspective or in order to you know, spe specifically highlight something happening. It's actually not something I talk about all that often, because camera timing is something I almost never see done particularly well or badly. Usually there's just the standard shots. You know what I mean if, you, if, you've, if you've actually studied camera usage ever when it comes to any kind of media, video game, television, or movie. Or even this, because this has a camera, which I, I guess this qualifies as movie, but whatever, you get the point. A YouTube movie is still a movie as far as I'm concerned. So when to actually have the camera begin movements or end movements and the timing of that is actually a really important thing. That's why most people use the standardized thing so they don't have to think about it. And they could just do it normally and nobody notices it so who cares. Thus really good camera timing is thus even more noticeable because it's harder to pull off than just doing the standard stuff. And that is a lot of what this movie does. This also contributes very well to one of the next things I want to talk about, the comedy. Looking at the list of films I'm covering this year, uh, God, we've got a mystery film I'm not going to mention right now, uh, two Pixar films, actually I think one of those is Disney. Um, we've got Back to the Future, we're covering Princess Bride later. You know, Nightmare for Christmas is on here. We've got several comedies that I've had to cover this year. Some of those I've actually already covered, which is part of why I'm discussing this like this. And it's really hard to analyze comedy. 
I do the best I can see the Spaceballs rumination from last year, but there's only so much you can do to explain the joke without completely ruining it. So uh, forgive me as I attempt to explain the joke. For there are two major attempts at comedy in this work. Number one is the nonplussed, and number two is the timing. Nonplussed. This is easiest to explain by example. Oh my god, they're being ripped apart by, by animals which are actually made of cotton candy and now they're, they're smearing peanut butter all over everywhere and isn't it weird and wacky and zany? And then it cuts to someone else, or someone else is still in the shot who's just going... Completely just unfazed. Okay. Maybe they have a drink. I actually don't have any liquid in here. I need to rectify that at some point. But, you know, take a sip of a drink. In one scene in this very film, there's a bit where someone checks their watch in exactly the same manner as I'm describing. That's nonplussed. That's the, the, it's a sort of a reaction humor. It's all about trying to emphasize the ridiculous by showing it in contrast to something that basically doesn't acknowledge how ridiculous it is, which in turn helps to exemplify the ridiculousness. Uh, this is actually something that Mel Brooks uses a lot, where there's very, very few individual characters who just react as if everything's completely straight, and therefore they're just kind of looking at the camera like, huh? That's a different application, but it's a similar approach. This then allows us to appreciate the ridiculous as it's happening a little bit more. Also, it serves one other point. It, uh, let's call it encircles the ridiculousness. I'll explain what I mean by that. If you sat back and looked at... I like to use examples here, but I'm going to fail at this one. Just about any work of fiction which has ridiculous elements to it, you could say that everything's ridiculous. Now, if you were to look at Star Trek, you could say that warp drive is ridiculous, transporters are ridiculous, the very idea of the universal translator is ridiculous, right? But what fictional works will often do is they will encircle the ridiculousness by making it so that... I'm saying this wrong. They will circle things they want to be seen as ridiculous and then emphasize just these things are ridiculous, so the rest of it does not seem as zany by contrast. In short, it's trying to establish what the audience accepts as normal per the fictional work. Thus, we can have something that is technically fully ridiculous, but we can divvy it up into normal and ridiculous, which is something this work does a lot. Para example, the initial fight scene with Ruby I already mentioned. Just about all the fight seeds qualify this. There's this thing where they launch them into a forest. They have to figure out their own landing strategy. So naturally one of them cycles around a tree and one of them, uh, you know, around the branch and one of them just slams into it and then throws her spear to save John. Thank you. And uh, I should mention this film did actually make me laugh quite a lot. Make of that what you will. But in so doing, that's normal. That's normal. That's not ridiculous. What's ridiculous is when they have the scenes of just, ah, like, for example, to, to fast forward just slightly from that very scene I just referenced, the bit where Jean jumps out to catch Weiss. Weiss, sorry. I always want to add the the there because, you know, German. The, the Weiss uh, and, and grab, hey, whoops, fall. That's ridiculous. And you see how it's kind of encircled to be separate from the fling into the forest kind of a thing. Sense me? It's all about presentation, which is what this work nails in spades. I know this sounds like a very dry analysis, and that's because it is. That's my job. But I do want to give absolute praise for the presentation on display here. This is a phenomenal work, which I'll get more to later. 
The other time of comedy, though, this one's harder to talk about. It's also my personal favorite type of comedy. Timing. This does have to do with when you move the camera. Jump cuts are a really important thing here. Uh, or smash cuts, as they're sometimes called. Because the whole point of a smash cut is, ha, hey, uh, you know, just complete contrast between the two scenes with literally just a single frame in between the two of them. Timing comedy is its actually harder to describe because what's happening isn't funny. There's no joke. Nothing is being presented in a humorous fashion other than the timing of how it is presented is what makes it funny. There's just this sort of junk and, and the, 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 the suddenness and the pacing of it is what actually causes a humorous reaction. I know that's a terrible explanation. Like I said, it's one of the hardest types of comedy to explain. And also my personal favorite, go figure. Well, actually, no. Referential humor, true referential humor is my personal favorite, but let's not get into that. Anywho, so very funny work. Haha, <laughs> I do find this work to be moderately amusing. This also leads to some reasonable authority figures and a little bit of the allure of Huntresses. Uh, Ruby is the only one who's really enamored of Huntress... Hunter, huntering, huntering me? Adventurers. But I find myself wondering, is that an aspect of her character individually? Is that an aspect of propaganda? You know, trying to uplift the thing to make it seem more glamorous. Or is it that rare... I don't want to comment too much on the world building since I know this series keeps going and all I'm going to do is invite 7,000 people to jump on here and answer all of my questions in the comments, which I actually don't want you to do. So please don't do that. I'm, I'm here to speculate and discuss. Okay, what do you want from me? But <clears throat> one thing I noticed in the world building is humanity is not actually doing all that great. They have the four kingdoms, which are somewhat spread out, and they're somewhat isolated, and they're somewhat small. They don't re the the, the in-between spaces kind of made me go. And I get the really strong impression that the Grimm are basically everywhere. Now, this is something that I could be completely wrong on. Because one of the biggest uh, examples I have of the Grimm being everywhere is the fact that there's the Beacon Academy. And then they go out to the forest, which is literally right at its border, right outside. And that place is crawling with Grimm. Now... If they imported those Grimm there specifically for training, that would make sense. That's not the vibe I got, though. The vibe I got was that there's just that many Grimm anywhere that isn't actively patrolled. That it's kind of a regular thing that people have to maintain. That it's actually entirely possible for roaming Grimm to get close enough to the city to be a problem. Which is why things like Huntsmen and Huntresses are actually a thing. Now, this is all just speculation, but... This is what I got from how they were presented, especially through the lens of Ruby. Which, again, is why I preface all this with a bunch of asterisks, because this could just be, you know, someone who really wants to be something when they grow up, and they're naturally going to romanticize it. Either way, we also find out... Uh, so, another thing I wanted to comment on. So the film uh, has a lot of usage of color, deliberate usage of color, and color theming. You know, we red, white, yellow... Black is, is the most obvious color theming. But if you'll notice, the, the color theming of the dust and the color theming of several of the other characters and the idea of just the way they use color feels like it's a big emphasis of the work. That makes sense. It thus also makes perfect sense why the background characters have none. I know black technically could be considered or isn't a color, depending on how exactly you're defining that. But my point is, 
it's a good decision. Now, I don't know if they continue that going forwards, because what it feels like is a decision made for budget reasons, either time budget or money budget. You know, we don't want to animate every single background character, so they're just black blobs which have vague outlines and some animation, and that's it. Now, that is a brilliant choice. I'm not calling that out. In fact, if anything, I think that idea might even continue going forwards, and I would be okay with it. But what I would do is I would expand upon that, make it so that entire sections of storytelling are this kind of black thing, both to emphasize what isn't important, you know, literal background elements, but also I would probably use that in some kind of narrative thing going forward. I don't know what, you know, just maybe it's the villains, or maybe it's the organization, or maybe it's a specific kingdom or something, you know. There's a lot of tools you could use that with, but by having such an immediate key visual distinction, you have a narrative tool now, something almost assuredly born of limitation. So go figure. So we go to school. It's a school. I have very little to say about the school stuff. I'm just going to be real. Uh, we actually talked about this during my run through Persona 5. I get that that's a major genre. In fact, I actually myself have had the idea several times to do something school-related with a fictional work. I was then informed that it's one of the most common types of fictional works, especially when it comes to anime. I didn't know that. <laughs> I can see the appeal. I can. But that is such a crowded market that I just walked away from that. Either way, they're going to this school. You know, we have the... Let's see, we've got the new kid, the ally the high standing, and the quiet one, which is, of course, the mysterious one as well. And I'm pretty sure you can name each of the four major characters based on the descriptions I just gave. Nothing against the archetypes, by the way. It's just the quick and early establishment needs to kind of hit archetypes so we have an idea of what we're getting into. Again, this is a form of good exposition, like the first scene was. Lots of good banter. Lots and lots and lots of good banter. Uh, we also find out that there's one guy who has a sword and board. Okay, that's cool. What we also find out is that he is rather unusual, and, spoilers, it's because he didn't actually qualify to be here. That makes perfect sense. So we find out Ruby is a bit of a weapons geek, okay? And kind of through her lens, we also find out several of the other weapons that other people use. By the way, funny little anecdote, I don't know how true or deliberate this is, but there is a huge number of the weapons that they use, which also double as ranged weapons. Her scythe obviously has a sniper rifle built into it, but we've also got, oh god, the hammer that had, like, shoots grenades or whatever, and then we had the, the mage who uses a rapier, but also has magic, and just, I'm, I'm going to stop there, but you get the idea. Sorry, I shouldn't call that magic, um, because apparently that's a snafu, majory, Physics alteration? I don't know what to call that. I guess aura manipulation would also qualify, but I'll get to that in a minute. Either way, he doesn't have any of that. He's got a sword and board. Good old-fashioned. Oh yeah, by the way, even Pyra has something that counts as a ranged weapon, because she can throw that spear exceptionally well. Still counts. Anywho, I suppose you could say he could throw his shield, but he doesn't, obviously. Alright, so, lots of good banter. Uh, this is actually where I made most of my notes about the comedy and the camera usage, so I've already talked about that, so let's go ahead and move on a little bit here. Uh, I do want to mention Nora is probably my favorite character. No, that's a lie. She's probably my second favorite character. So for anybody curious, Nora is adorable and awesome, and has a hammer, which is also a grenade launcher. I mean, what do you want from me? Although if I had to pick one of the weapons, I'd 
probably go with the scythe or Yang's weapons, the fist weapons. But I've always loved martial artistry. Artistry? So, what the hell do I know? Anywho. <clears throat> so. We get the immediate team up. I already mentioned... God, I already talked about that. And I already talked about that. The initial team-up sequence is kind of amusing. You will be team it, teamed up with the person who's walking on your roof right now. <laughs> They've been doing stuff all day. There's nothing I can do except for not record all day. I do apologize for the noise if it does show up on the mic. I will be doing some audio balancing to try and make sure it doesn't. The... Team-ups, the initial team-ups. Obviously, she really wants to team up with Yang, so naturally she teams up with Weiss. Wah, wah. That's okay. They're actually a good team. No, really. Uh, ignoring the fact that their personalities actually work pretty well together. Which brings me to my next thing. The personalities of the characters is probably the biggest strength of the work, in my opinion. A lot of effort was done to make them archetypes with variances. What I usually refer to as two-dimensional characters. And considering how quickly and efficiently they have to establish all these characters, that's impressive. I know that you're, a lot of people think anything less than a three-dimensional character is an insult, and those people have never written characters before. Even a one-dimensional character can be interesting, after all. Look at Voldemort, to use one example. So, the, the two-dimensionalness of their characters is a good touch, and a lot of them will do this thing, and I don't know how to better describe it, where they seem to be doing something that is typical for their archetype, and then they'll vary it up because of their particular personality. Showing that, that whole one-step-off thing. And, of course, there are layers to them, and there's depths to them, and Weiss gets along with Ruby, and there's that thing where Weiss is also upset at Black because of everything that happened there. Blake, excuse me, Blake. Is it Blake? Oh, God, I can't remember her name. I'll, I'll talk about her later. But you'll notice also, from a purely action set piece, because remember, this is still an action work, we need to have action sequences. So how do we line up the teams? Well, we've got a mage and a glass cannon, which is an interesting combo, can work in some games <clears throat> and some fictional works. Basically, the idea is to completely destroy the enemy before they can do anything, or to lock down the enemy while you completely destroy them. You know, CC and Mez while destroying, or destroy before it reaches. Very, you know, kill it before we die is the name of that strategy. We've got a sword and border, who's put up, put up with what is effectively another sword and border. We've got the UA and the whip. You know, all sorts of stuff like that, but my one of the things I found interesting is there's this bit where Ren, who I haven't talked about much because Ren is mostly funny because of how well he gels with Nora. So Ren is part of why Nora is so funny. So the duo is, is the enjoyment factor there, but I just wanted to mention that. Anyways, Ren is fighting some giant snake thing. While he's doing so, we get exposition. I've actually talked about this recently. The idea is there's a lot of ways to do exposition. So many. And this, this film so far has had good exposition. And this is, I'd say, average to good exposition. What you do is you have characters talking. But rather than just having it a bland scene of dry exposition, you have something going on. So basically, the audience has something to enjoy watching while the exposition is happening. Sense me? This can also go very badly, especially if it gets particularly pandery. Looking at you, Season 1 of Enterprise. So, in this case, we have a fight going on while they discuss what auras are. Now, I mentioned auras earlier. Obviously, auras are not magic. In fact, near as I can tell, dust and auras are actually separate things. But anyways, auras apparently are their stamina bar, which also coincidentally kind of forms their HP bar. I'll talk more about that in a minute. 
It's a cool idea. I'm with it. Anything with a soul has an aura is established here, by the way. Which also establishes that the Grimm do not have auras. Huh. That chainsaw also does not have an aura. Sorry, sorry. <clears throat> they go and get the chess pieces. Cute. You know, which chess pieces you picked in terms of determines which group you... Which, which piece would you pick? Ignore which teams line up with each other. Don't try to pick Knight because you want to be with Ruby. Like, if you were just given a chessboard and told to pick one of the pieces, which would you pick? No judgment. I'm just actually curious. My first thought would be Queen, admittedly. Go ahead. Make fun. It's okay. But, of course, I would pick the Queen first. I am a glass cannon who is also the weakest, biggest point of vulnerability in, in chess. My loss is devastating, but I can also accomplish a great deal. My second piece would probably be a knight because maneuverability. Oh my god, really? Do you have to do that right outside my door? <laughs> they're moving on. They're moving on. Nope, nope, now they're coming back. Oh my god, at least they're doing it on a weekend? Wait, that's even worse, isn't it? Shouldn't they do that during the weekday? You know, a, uh, uh, this is where I mentioned the ranged thing. They also start using combo attacks, which are very cool, actually. The scene where they fight the, the eagle and the scorpion is actually probably my favorite overall combat scene in the whole work. As usual, I don't have much to say about an action sequence because there's only so much you can analyze about an action sequence without getting into the really nitty-gritty of actual choreography, which actually I do find fascinating and I wish I could do more choreographic work in my life. No, really, I used to actually do it just for fun back when I worked in uh, TV productions both at school and immediately after back when I was a kid in high school. But the point is... I don't, you don't want to sit here listening to me talk about how they use the balance point of one character who is being used in order to toss this other character there so that the main meat can shove here, which also means that their movement moves in this way, and you don't want to hear me talk about that. So instead, let's just move forward to ask, what the hell does Patch mean? Well, Baron Evilface is looking at a map. He's got it lined up. I love the fact that there's the, the stupid cops and the cops up here. But the thing that really caught me was Patch, which is out on an island. What the heck does that mean? It's not explained in this. So then they bring a monster into the class, naturally. This then leads to some good camera work and some good character work. This is also when Weiss and Ruby decide to start burying the hatchet and working a little bit more closely to each other because, well, because both get the discussion that they need from teachers who actually give a damn. And, oh my god, teachers that actually give a damn. <laughs> I don't even know what to make of that. That's just such a weird, unusual thing. But it's cool. It's cool to see it. There's also this great bit, I have to mention this one, where uh, she's giving this big, uh, she, Nora is giving this big discussion about this horrible thing she went through and the thick, thick of night, and Ren's like, it was day, it was two monsters, oh my god, she's been saying this for, the two, two really are the funniest, funniest grouping in the entire work, please stop, that. please, please, so, Aura being used as an HP thing, and the tournament idea. This is the next thing I wanted to talk about. Uh, the uh, So we've got our resident bully, because of course every school's got to have a bully. And they offer to break his legs. Kind of wish they had, but let's not get into that. And as they're talking about it, um, 
ideas. The 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 faculty member mentions the idea that they actually have official tournaments where someone can call call a fight once someone's aura gets down to a certain point when their stamina bar has been drained that far, and that just sounded so fascinating that I had so many ideas based on that. A way of tracking someone's ability to fight in a literal mathematical way, effectively giving them an HP bar, so you can have fights of conflict and, and a coliseum and everything that is both necessary and helpful about such a thing being a part of blood sports without the blood, without the killing. That just is such a cool idea. Because then you can have people have ways of com competing in a violent manner, which doesn't get too violent. It doesn't go over the top. It doesn't result in death. It's not used as, you know, the gladiatorial thing. But it's still gladiatorial. Just, I don't know, that, that just really worked for me. I, I love that idea. Anyways. So, the next thing we see is that Jackass is, in fact, a jackass, the bully I mentioned. I'm, I didn't even write his name down, and I'm not even going to mention it, because screw him. Oh, I lied. I wrote his name down. I'm going to pretend I didn't see that. There we go. It's gone. It's gone. No name here. Instead, this is really awkward. Can I put this down? Thank you. Instead, what we have is a bit of quick and dirty exposition because he pulls on some ears saying, Hey, I told you they were real. Which now shows us the kind of things that faunas are. Like, uh, like you know... Hmm. <clears throat> so, um... I... I'll talk more about that in a second, but no, I'm just going to say it now. So, I always assumed Blake was half animal, that those were ears instead of a ribbon. I assumed that from the first time I saw her, immediately. At no point did I th did it even occur to me that that was a ribbon. Maybe that's the art style, maybe that's just my presumptions, maybe I'm a moron, I don't know. But at no point did it even occur to me that she was a normal human. So, in my mind, and what I wrote down was, this is our second showcasing of the faunas, immediately before we get the, the down-and-dirty exposition on what the faunas actually are. Okay, I'm with it. We find out that there was a war. We also find out that that war was recent. Class struggles. <sighs> Yay. The greatest of things. By the way, apparently Godot is the one teaching this class. I don't know. So this then leads to Jean and his big confession. Now, I haven't talked about John so far because I don't have a lot to say about him. He's, um... Uh... He's a lovable idiot. He himself calls himself that. That's it. That That's it. He's the butt of the jokes. And yet, what we see is he's also a moron on top of that, because he is a failure and a self-acknowledged failure, and he wants really strongly to be the big, tough hero guy. And you know what that means to me? Boy, I've been there. I actually would love to know how many of you, you don't have to answer publicly or in the comments section, relate to that mentality of being a failure, like I am. Of being worthless and stupid like I am, and wishing so desperately that you could be so much more than you are, like I do. So he suddenly is the POV character, out of nowhere, which, uh, wow, <laughs> a bit of a shuffle there. We also find out that he lied to get in, and then he's, he gets blackmailed by a person whose name I definitely didn't write down. 
This then leads to, thankfully the blackmailing thing doesn't take too awful long, but at the same time, at least he, you know, they're like, hey, we're going to get this stuff, and we're going to smash it on her, and she's going to be attacked by wasps. Isn't that going to be funny? And I'm like, dude. I've noticed that a lot of fiction tends to portray bullying in a rather unpleasant manner. Now, I know what you're thinking. Well, yeah, bullying is terrible, and you're absolutely right, but I'm phrasing it wrong. Uh, there's a work, which I will not mention the name of, partially because I forgot the name of the movie, where bullies decide to try and bully someone by running over his bike while he was still on it. He barely gets off the bike in time. That's attempted murder. Manslaughter at the lightest in order to bully someone. That's, that, that's a step past bullying, I think. You know? That's into the point of what is wrong with you. And granted, bullies in general could be asked what is wrong with you, but you see how it's an escalation. It's actually the same mentality, just more severe. Which leads us to this. I'm going to throw this jam at her. She's going to be attacked by wasps. Oops, I have the jam on me. Now I'm going to beat the crap out of you. Oh, and then an Ursa shows up. I actually thought what would happen is he would throw the jam on him, use the wasps on him, and basically outmaneuver his opponent. Effectively outthink someone who he is not capable of beating in a fair fight. Instead, what happens is the Ursa shows up, and summoned by the, the, the jelly or whatever, the jam, and that then leads... Oh yeah, and Nora loves the taste of the jam, because of course she does. That then leads to him having his big hero moment where he actually saves the bully's life thanks to Pyra's influence of uh, manipulating magnets. Magnets are cool too. And allowing him to defeat the Ursa. Okay, that's neat. Not where I would go with that, but I'm curious where that will go in the future. Don't answer the question, please. This, of course, leads me to the finale. Yes, we're already there. You'll notice that they're basically fighting someone low tier. This is a classic approach to basically everything. Uh, anything that's designed to be episodic, whether it's a video game or a television show, a book, or a movie series, almost always starts the initial threat as something very low tier, very, very down to earth, because it doesn't want to really throw you up against, you know, death, doom, dark, destructo right off the bat, right? So we're fighting some random mooks who don't even have names or faces, and jackass with a cane gun. Okay. Given everything they fought to date, he's probably not someone who could actually fight against them at all. So they're obviously going to be the major combatant. Oh, this also leads to some more stuff about the faunas and some exposition about the White Fang. I could talk about the White Fang for a while. I would rather not, if that's okay. Because the only way to talk about the White Fang is to talk about the acceptability of terrorism. Because that is the topic. Is it okay to pursue terrorism is actually prefaced by the question, what is terrorism? And don't give me the, the legal definition. What is terrorism actually in real life is really the question here. After all, we've got Avalanche over in FF7 who qualify as terrorists, but we've also got the Rebel Alliance over on Star Wars who qualify as terrorists. And you see why this actually turns into a big morassy mess. And even in the work, Blake admissions, admissions, mentions and admits that the terroristic works were working. They were getting the, the you know, they were being treated as equals, uh, thanks to fear, but nevertheless, it was improving their social standing. So, it was working. That's neat. Um, I, I don't know what else to say about that, to be completely honest with you. 
I, like I said, I'd rather not talk about that. But this is when I mentioned that it was so obvious to me that she was a fauna. In fact, funny point, she does like tuna a lot. <clears throat> this is, of course, immediately dovetailed into the introduction of Jenny. Um, I think that's Jenny. God, I can't read my own handwriting. <laughs> I say I have this problem a lot. It's because I'm in a lot of a hurry when I'm typing or when I'm when I'm writing. Excuse me. Okay, that's her. I'm right. No, I'm not right. Maybe I'm completely wrong. Who the hell is this character? Oh my god, I just watched this five minutes ago and I can't think of the name of the character. One moment. Penny! Penny with a P! God damn it! Frickin' stupid... It's been a long day. At least they seem to have stopped the thing. Is that a P? That does not even remotely look like a P. I can see the any. So Penny's a robot. Now, <laughs> the note I actually have written here just says, uh, I didn't know robots were a thing in this setting. And I was going to talk about how interesting it is that apparently robots are normal and you know blah, blah, blah. And then I noticed that no one seems to call her a robot. In fact... I realized that I was apparently wrong. Obviously, she's not a robot. She's just weird and quirky, just like Ruby was at the first. So, okay, that makes sense. Then the fight happens, and then Penny is... Oh, I wrote her name down here. It's a lot easier to read. And Penny is clearly a robot. Yeah. <laughs> it's just funny to me, because she's so... Like with Blake, she's so obviously a robot right up the front that I didn't realize it was supposed to be a twist. Anywho, uh, we have some exposition about the White Fang. Oh, there's this nice little bit where Weiss mentions, The innocent never run. I actually have a quote up there, if you'll forgive me for sharing it with you. Uh, this actually, um, I'm going to restructure the quote just to make it fit. Everyone runs. The innocent run because they don't want to be blamed for something they didn't do, and the guilty run because they don't have any other choice. Credit if you recognize the quote. So then we have the Mook fight. Oh, by the way, even the nunchucks are guns, because everything's guns. Everything's a ranged weapon in this... Not everything. Uh, the guys don't have ranged weapons. I'm kidding. Obviously, it's just like three people who don't have ranged weapons. Although, I couldn't tell if Yang has a ranged weapon. It was hard to tell. This is when, when Penny pulls out her magnetic telekinesis sword thing of awesome. Probably the coolest thing in the whole work so far. Because the way she uses those is brilliant and awesome. And she literally pulls down a gunship by herself. So she's super awesome. Then we have a good character scene, and then we have some foreshadowing in the next episode, the end. <sighs> I hope I can make something like this someday. This is a passion project. It, it oozes with it. I don't actually know if that's true. Behind-the-scenes material about this was weird and wonky and kind of all over the place, and honestly, after doing a initial brush, I realized that I was going to be spoiling the crap out of myself for it, so I decided not to do so, and I just kind of walked into this mostly blind. So this is just from the perspective of analysis, presumption. But this feels a lot like a passion project, something that someone just sat down and said, you know, I really want to do this. And so while there is... This is going to sound like an insult, but I don't mean it as one. There is an amateur feel to the whole thing. 
It's that unique form of amateurness, which just means they don't have the resources, but they certainly have the talent. And thus what we have is a really, really well-done film with good voice acting, excellent animation, good camera usage, good camera timing, good comedy, excellent banter, nice dialogue, and a generally engaging overall story arc. This is very well executed, which is why I mentioned my earlier point. I would love to make something like this someday. <sighs> Regardless, I do hope you have enjoyed my overall thoughts on this work, and how it is presented, and how it's done. And before the chainsaw guy gets too much closer, I will chop off. See you next time, guys.